This is Monster Manual Match. This is the podcast where we look at each entry in the Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition Monster Manual and we pick apart what they've written for you to use. We talk about how you're supposed to use them in a game, what kind of psychological niche they might be pointing towards, they might be trying to get you to use, um, the branding of it. We talk about the history of the monsters in mythology and folklore, and we come up with ways for you to use them more creatively or to think about them um, in your daily life whenever you're bored. You can do that. That is Monster Manual Mash in a nutshell. I'm Chris Lawson. I'm Wes Grist. And today we are talking about Drow. Uh, Yes, we fought our way out of the D's, and we did elemental, and now we're back in a D because of a frustrating piece of copy editing. They've decided to put um, the elves colon drow, <laughs> and they, they don't do this for any other entry. And I don't know why. Yeah, they didn't do like dwarves colon duragar. You know, yeah. they didn't do it's yeah. I think it's because in 5th edition, Drow are explicitly playable. Mm -hmm. I think they might be the only entry in the Monster Manual that you can also find in the Player's Handbook. Yeah, between those two specific books? Yeah, totally. Because like, there's other books where you lose the stats to play as like a lizard man or a goblin or something, but not in the Player's Handbook. Right. Yeah, that's all like extra stuff. This was like right out of the gate. They know people are going to want to be a moody... uh, goth and so there it is but we begin drow i guess i guess we should say uh uh it's been a while we're gonna do more uh sorry (laughs) (laughs) life life gets in the way man life gets in the way yeah uh but the monsters never go anywhere and every time i see the monster manual i am filled with shame until we finish this uh this concept so here we are going at it again drow yeah Yeah, elves colon drow elves colon drow we start off with a some moody art which is kind of nice um also i should say uh wes and i recorded this podcast this episode like back at the beginning of april and we're dissatisfied with our performances and i've also recruited the help of someone um we desperately need who is the Monster Manual Mash uh, Tolkien correspondent, Emily Minthorn, who will join us in a moment. Um, I, I don't want to call her a Tolkien expert because that will make, I don't want to open her up to internet attacks. <laughs> I would love to be attacked. On yeah. Okay. Well, she, uh, she's an, a Tolkien scholar. No, not no. a Tolkien scholar. <laughs> She tells me stuff about Lord of the Rings and Tolkien that I didn't know. And after we recorded, I mentioned that we recorded Drow, and then she told me a bunch of stuff that would have been good to know earlier. So she'll be here when we get into that that part of it. But for now, let's do the usual thing, and we'll start off with the actual description as given in the Monster Manual Mash book. So out of the gate, we've got tens of thousands of years ago, Elves were divided, the benevolent fighting the selfish and cruel, and the former banished the latter to the subterranean deaths, sought refuge with the only deity who did not abandon them and built an empire in the underworld. So you get a big, unspecific mythology at the beginning. Um, It doesn't tell you how they separated the benevolent from the selfish and cruel. Like, was it... (laughs) This to me reeks of the kind of like post. They, put, they took a personality test. Yeah, <laughs> they took a personality yeah. test. And they says, yeah, all all the IMFTPs have to go down there. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. All the judgment types over here, and all the intuitive types over here. What's your Myers Briggs, Wes? Do you know? Oh, you know, I don't really know because I've taken it at different times in my life and gotten wildly different results. I'm also not sure how like legit every test I've taken was. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which one do you uh, identify with? Then? 
Um, that's not allowed. Yeah, it is. Sure, it is. Because I mean, like, I think I've I've always gotten one of two results. So okay, it just depends on the day, right? But well, you know, yeah, doesn't tell yeah. you if you're a wood elf or drow or high elf. <laughs> so I don't want to hear it. I'm already derailing things. I'm going to go back yeah. to looking at dogs on the yeah, internet. We'll ca- I'll oh, call yeah, you no. when I need. It's fine. I'm considered taking a personality test right now on the podcast <laughs> just to just to be able to, yeah. You are the type mm. of personality that has a Dungeons and Dragons podcast. That's all you need to know. Yeah, that's the important part. That's what I look for. The the history of the this benevolent fighting the selfish kind of it's like the victor is writing history. It's like the high elves are kicking out the dark elves already. Yeah, it's like selfish according to whom 10,000 year living people in a floating city that don't deal with anyone else, high yeah. elves, you know, like because it's a very unspecific history, but the like elves as we know them in fifth edition are presented as they're just as different as people. Like they have kind of a general uh, vibe, but they're also you know, individuals and they have different alignments and different, uh, you know, ways of living even among a certain race. So uh you can do with that background as much as you want it's kind of like a, almost a religious background it's like a religious cosmology but you can't get into anything specific it also it, it, i just i wrote down a big canceling like there was a bunch of <laughs> as if people just decided one day like you know what everyone that we have a problem with has to leave and only mm-hmm. the like in group gets to stay and be high elves yeah or i don't know i wonder like cuz they specifically use the term like selfish right so i'm like okay well selfish according to who and all that but like what if like what if the the drow the 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 dark elves of like whatever you want to call them in the setting like what if they were calling themselves selfish like what if they just all got if they just got all the elves that got really into ayn rand (laughs) you know yeah and they're like fine go start your uh uh stupid atlas shrugged city without regulations underground where no one can stop you and that's how it happened (laughs) this is not like a like a like a self-imposed exiling and then the uh, wildly hierarchical dystopia they ended up with was what they got i don't know i'm already theorizing marketplace of ideas yeah (laughs) did did it for them um so the the deity that didn't abandon them was lolf who is a big spider queen so because of Loth and being in the underground, they no longer see themselves as exiles because they've become so home uh, in the underground, but they still plot to destroy the elves above when Loth commands them. So a couple of things there, uh, very easy to wrap your head around the like motif, which is spider stuff. So webs, um, machinations, traps, capturing people live. Yeah. Um, hiding, ambush, ambushery. Uh, it also kind of, it's a weird uh, mindset to be in because they want revenge and they almost seem jealous of the surface elves, but they also are at home. They're like trying to have it both ways and say that they're totally fine. Like they don't, they don't care about the above ground anymore, but they like secretly do, yeah. which is the good hallmark of a villain, I think. Yeah, like that. Um, I like it when the like when you really analyze the ideology of the vi- villains. Like it doesn't actually make a whole lot of sense. <laughs> That's kind of what makes them the villains. Because there's a thing in a lot of fiction where like, no, you got to give the villains like a point. Like they got to have a point. It's like, well, you could also just have them be like committed, but like wildly wrong and inconsistent <laughs> with yeah, their, you know, system of whatever. This strikes me as like an insecurity. That- yeah. Yeah. I'm imagining like Cobra Commander and Skeletor who are like the kind of prototypical child's villains from my day. I'm not nice. I'm evil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like they, they're, they're obsessed with their own power, but they're also afraid that they don't have enough at the same time. So they like have these kind of conflicting ideas about things that makes them neurotic and crazy. Yeah. The next entry says creatures of darkness. They've evolved to their surroundings. They can see in the dark, but no longer stand sunlight. They capture slaves from the surface world at night. So here you have um, motive, 
you have potential adventure happenings, people being stolen um, and brought to an ill fate. You have a weakness that you can try to take advantage of somehow, which is the sunlight. In different editions, that's been more or less important. In this, um, in fifth edition, it just kind of like blinds them. They have disadvantage or something like that, mm-hmm. I think. Um, in or sunglasses see emily suggests sunglasses which uh is an obvious fix that for all the magic in the world i don't think anyone's addressed (laughs) (laughs) i don't see sunglasses once in the uh magic item list but i think that's a good idea when Uh, they they do have goggles of the night like they have night vision glasses but not not sunglasses not the other way around (laughs) yeah um it also used to be that all of their equipment was explicitly um, really high powered. They were like anywhere between plus two and plus five you would find on any given individual and their armor was really good, but it only worked underground. As soon as you brought it to the light, it would, um, it would just fall apart. Yeah. So that was like a cool bit of myth and lore, but it also was a practical method of stopping players from getting too overpowered too quickly. Yeah, which uh, I think I, last time we tried to make this uh, episode, I mentioned this too. But in the in the in the game uh, Baldur's Gate Two, which is based on the second edition rule set rule set of Dungeons and Dragons, there's a part in the story where you go into the Underdark to do some stuff, and you end up fighting a bunch of Drow, and they have this equipment on them, which is like this purple metallic cool stuff, and it's way better than anything you had up until then, and it's really light, so your wizards can wear it and still cast spells on it because it doesn't like impair their movement at all. So, by the end of that like wing of the story, like everyone's in this incredibly strong armor, and everyone like everything's uh, uh, super strong, and then you go to the surface at the end of it, and then you look in your inventory, and you've just got a bunch of piles of dust because it disintegrated on your way up. So, if you got rid of all your other stuff to take the drow stuff, you end up getting to like near the end of the game with none of your equipment anymore and i i thought that was a great uh moment in that game as frustrating as it was yeah i think that's it's meant yeah to be that way originally like players wouldn't know that and then the d the dm can feel really proud of himself for pissing off his players which Mm -hmm. is a frequent feature of the older edition Gotta love it when you outsmart people in a situation that you created in order to outsmart them. <laughs> but it's all about, baby. Yeah. They have underdark cities. They build fantastic cities in enormous caves. They like to hollow out giants, stalactites, and stalagmites. They are otherwise sprawling metropoli enclosed by high walls. Non-drow visitors must conduct business outside the walls under watchful eyes. They keep and raise giant spider mounts both as sources of webbing for traps and for building and for riding. Um, this part's great. It gives you locations, details on how to interact with those locations, um, options. So a drought doesn't have to be immediately aggressive. You can approach them. They'll be like, it should be a tense and dangerous experience, but it doesn't have to be a fight, which I think is great. and needs to be like said more. I know like, I think as you get more experience running games, you 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 get a handle on that already but a lot of these things as presented just in the book are just like fighty fighty fights fights mm-hmm. so this is cool you can have them as like uneasy allies or just like you can just pass by a drow fortress and have the option of uh buying and selling stuff uh drow magic they use magic to raise their cities and augment their weapons and armor and to summon demons Spellcasters are arrogant and don't hesitate to use their magic in abhorrent ways. So very clearly villains. Um, they're always a little light on what exactly the, the abhorrence is. We know they take slaves uh, to work for them, but we don't get much sense of like what, what, they're, what they're about. Yeah. M, M says that it's S and M. Uh, and we'll we can probably explore that a little more when we get into like drow in the greater um, culture, the idea of these of dark elves and other forms of media and yeah. stuff. And D and D being a wizard to the coast family game, sort of they like just kind of leave it to your imagination. I kind of found that they like elves and drow in particular. They're always conflicted in D and D. Like, are they 
fairy creatures or are they just like us with slightly different stats the way they're presented because it's like they want to originally in like ad and d the elves were way much more connected to fairy kind mm-hmm. and there were more more sort of mischievous or or like inscrutable and more whimsical more prone to uh passion and then over time i think as people saw them as like playable they just as a result became more human and more understandable so like the taking of slaves for elves it seems like a it's a very like just to work just to have them work is a very human thing whereas elves in folklore often take like beautiful people or interesting people and just like sit them down at a table and like get them like want to chat we'll have tea for 10,000 years yeah we'll have like a dance that'll last and go on and on and on and like they'll take them it'll be a, a ball but it'll be a ball at like 3 a.m when they're like just on the cusp of everyone about to leave and go to sleep but that 3 a.m stretches into infinity yeah which like and that used to be elves like you said, that would do that stuff with people. But now it's like, there's a whole, there's a ladrin, which are like the, the, the really elfy elves that live in the, in the, in the Feywild. And it's like the, the Overton window of like elfiness <laughs> is like shifted so that now the, there, there has to be like a whole, I guess they were always there, but a whole new category of like, no, no, these are the, because it mentions that elves have fey ancestry, which is why like sleep magic doesn't work on them. And they only need yeah. to trance. And some of them have like innate magical stuff that they can do, but they're not like inherently fey creatures, like from another plane of reality that sort of follows different rules and has like whimsy built into its like physics, the way that uh, the fey wild does. And so now there's a whole separate thing. There's the fey wild and like the summer, autumn and winter courts and like all of that, all of that really elfy stuff. But now that's, a different thing like a ladrin which are i think that's what they are a ladrin right like those are the that sounds yeah. right yeah yeah and they're like the ancestors of elves who still live in the feywild that still do the thing we're like oh hey oh you had food and you didn't ask for it well time for an ironic trick that just <laughs> inconveniences you drastically out of proportion you know because uh, we everything's different it's the thing you know that's like a whole the whole everything's shifted now so that yeah yeah, yeah. we had the legolasification yeah. of elves where they just become like battle archers yeah um they have adamantine all of their arms and armor are made of adamantine which is why in the second edition they were so powerful adamantine is a material that you can find in classical mythology it is probably um diamond but the english word for diamond is derived from adamas which you can trace um, further and further back in ancient Greece. It was an adjective meaning unconquerable or untamable. So it is not an actual uh, like material. It just means something that is adamantine is something that is just like extremely hard. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like an unobtainium uh, or what's a, what's Wolverine made out of? I think that's, I think it's adamantium, which adamantium, is like just, yeah. just makes it sound more like a chemical element, but yeah. yeah, same idea. It is dark, supernaturally hard, and enhanced equipment that disappears in sunlight. So this just straight up disappears. The drow have cutthroat politics. When they do work together, alliances are short-lived. Noble houses are ruled by matrons. Primary families are backed by lesser houses. And then you have the rank-and-file house slaves of lower-born drow and occasional non-drow captives. So depending on what kind of game you want to run, you have possible reasons for intrigue to work for or against certain drow houses or to pit houses against each other. And then you have options for meeting other creatures other than drow among them. So you have reasons to encounter non-drow people in a drow society if you want to do that. You can get like deeper and deeper into drow stuff. In third edition, there was a whole book on the drow that you could just really fan out in and get get into. But in terms of like a day to day game, you don't really need to know any of that. It was more for the uh, the lore heads. Um, we talked a little bit about the matriarchal rule, 
Loth shows up and bosses people around and punishes disobedience. So everyone kind of goes along with it because she is a spider goddess. <laughs> the males are subservient to females. Males can rise to middle management, but they can never be priests or rule the house. This is um, brought over from the second edition. This is something that people complain about sometimes. Um, it's like, of course, the evil underground society worships women and has powerful women as like a sign of how evil they are. Um, so people think that that is a wrong thing to do. There's also the other side of that. Um, spiders often eat males after mating. And so it makes sense to extend that into this like tiered gender society. Um, you could possibly, depending on how spicy you want your game, you could have like disenfranchised males plotting to take over um, and Loth like coming and biting their heads off. Um, I never, I've never known what to do with that. Typically the, the males are the ones who go to the surface and steal slaves while the females are the ones with the real power. So like when you encounter a drow female, it's a bigger deal because you know that they have priestess powers of summoning specific demons or powerful magic. They have poison predilection. They use spider venom and substances from various flora from the underdark. They specialize in a viscid toxin that knocks people out so they can be captured easily. So this works out into... Um, if they hit you with it, you get poisoned. So you have disadvantage and you feel bad. And if you fail a save, then you go <laughs> unconscious for like X number of rounds or something like that. It used to be way more powerful in previous editions. It was like, except fourth, I think fourth was a little easier, but in previous editions, it was like, you were out for hours. If you got hit with a, it was very serious to fight drow because you could go down and be done. Yeah. But it was also a way for the DM to like, railroad you into being captured which isn't as uh acceptable these days i think most people don't do that anymore but you still have the risk of it happening now which is good i think it's good to have it be known that fighting something in particular could lead to an immediate drop yeah so it makes it all the more exciting when you get away from it or you you fight them i've always and i've always liked um like in any kind of like uh, gaming situation with with RPGs, like whether it's like tabletop or like video games, it's when you have a plan and then it goes wrong, and then trying to deal with the plan having gone wrong is always like fun to me. Like I like the idea of like, okay, we got to go through the underdark and we got to do this thing. We got to maybe deal with a drought and like, oh no, now we're captured and like that. Just have to have to have to deal with that is like. Or I don't know, you go on a, like when you go on a stealth mission of some kind, but then you get noticed and like now we're in a giant fight that we didn't prepare for because we were prepared to be sneaky. Like I like uh, dealing, I like dealing with things when they've gone wrong, but that's a, that's, that's, you know, that's, uh, depends on the group of people. Yeah. I think a lot of players I know will avoid it as much as they can. They will <laughs> never put themselves in a, a position of vulnerability but, you know, that's, that's them. We have uh, three entries. Well, four. But three main ones and then one kind of, like, all-purpose one. We have the Drow Elite Warrior. These are the people who lead surface raids. They can be male or female. Um, so scratch what I said earlier. You have a <laughs> Drow Mage who are privileged males who aren't good warriors and have no recourse but to study magic in order to maintain their position. Uh, females with magical affinity may become mages too, but aren't common. Um, I think this is something you can find in a lot of the Forgotten Realms with the uh, more important drow characters who leave drow society. I think they're all males. And I think that's because you can't expect to rise any higher. Like if you want to have any control over your life in drow society, you can't. <laughs> you are completely subservient to the like priestess caste and you can never join them so a lot of males leave to do their own thing um i think we kind of i don't know if we talked about that in the drider episode about that could be a re like exiled people become driders um so you have jarlaxle and then you have drizzdurdurdurdurdurdurdurdurdurdurdurdurdurdurdurdurdurdurdurdurdurdurdurdurdurdurdurdurdurdurdurdurdurdurdurdurdurdurdurdurdurdurdurdurdurdurdurdurd
thing and also a good way of uh, inserting drow player characters because the the drow are like I think they're supposed to be chaotic but they they have like a really rigid society um, which I don't know if that is on purpose or if that is an actual kind of mistake in thinking you know yeah I don't know going by just the the stats here uh the stat blocks they're neutral evil it looks like oh okay right. all four of the, all, all four of the the ones that give you here which makes sense because neutral evil is just like that makes more what, sense yeah makes sense yeah. that's the selfishness one yeah. yeah uh then you have the priestess of loth who are the noble female drow trained from birth to be priestesses who execute the will of the spider queen and then you have uh kind of like generic rank and file drow they all have those poisons, so they're all fairly uh, formidable. They all also can cast dancing lights, fairy fire, and darkness. So they never talk about what those are or how they would use them, um, but they're, they're things that they've had since second edition that are kind of important if you want to be tactically minded when you are running them. So I was reading about this. The idea is that they have dark vision, but they don't have... Uh, it's not blind sight. Like they still can make use of light, just not sunlight. Mm-hmm. So if they're in a fight, they will cast fairy fire or dancing lights to outline opponents and to, let's say there's like a, a rogue trying to sneak attack. They will cast dancing lights to like follow them around so that they don't get um, like disadvantage on their, yeah. on their check to see them. Cool. And then darkness would just be because they can see in darkness, so it doesn't help them against other drow, but it's just used as like a, a quick tactical thing against surface dwellers. Yeah. You know what that's like? That's like um, in the deep sea, there's a species of, uh, there's a kind, cer- certain kinds of viper fish. Um, they look kind of like angler fish with the big teeth and the, the dangly. I'm, I'm, you can't see because it's a podcast, but I'm, I'm, I'm miming what I, I would look like if I were a, if I were a viper fish and they have different colors of bioluminescence for different situations. And so most of the bioluminescence for like fish underwater, it's like blue because blue light travels through water longer. So it's, it's, you can see that. And a lot of it's for camouflage because if there's a little bit of light, they lighten themselves up to be not darker than their surroundings. And then sometimes they use lures to make it like, Oh, that's a little thing I'm going to eat. Cause that's the only way they can communicate. But, these viper fish they can lure things and then they can camouflage themselves with blue lights but they also have a spotlight which is red bioluminescence that is just forward facing but none of the other fish that live down there can see red light because they never need to because no one uses it but the viper fish and so that's like their submarine stealth mode one so they have lights to camouflage themselves and to signal to other things but when they're hunting they just use the red lights that go a short distance just in front of them that no one else can see. So they ha- they live deep below everything else and are like a weird, more sinister seeming version of surface things that use light in like different <laughs> defensive and offensive ways. So yeah, that just reminds me of, of deep sea fish. So I, I like uh, the idea maybe that like a drow city, it like, it looks it, uh, very much like an, a bioluminescence heavy deep sea environment kind of thing with like that kind of light everywhere and like, uh, a lot of darkness, a lot of intentional darkness and a lot of intentional light, but all of it is serving some kind of like purpose to serve the drow, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a good way of envisioning the cities themselves. You could have them. The easy answer with bioluminescence underground is always a mushroom. You could yeah. always have like um, the mushroom, uh, like bulbs, or you could just have the the roots. What do you call it? Mycelium? The roots of a mushroom just like running throughout. Yeah the walls um, giving off like a red, an infrared uh, lighting. And then they would also probably have like symbolic or like religiously important uses of darkness and light. So like Mm -hmm. a spider would want to stay completely hidden. You have sections of the city that are totally in darkness. Um, They have double the range of normal dark vision. um, So they can see infrared for a great distance, but uh, it is still, more limited than normal than yeah. normal sight. So light would yeah. be important and maybe they should be keeping those crazy fish as pets because that sounds like a dark elf fish if I've heard well, one. Yeah, and it, I just cuz if they can conjure like magically lights in a space 
right there. Like if they were, I don't know, fighting or hunting or doing raids or anything, I imagine them like using their ability to magically conjure light the way that uh, animals use bioluminescence as like a distraction or a lure or something. That seems like a way they would innate, use those innate abilities they have to me, potentially. Yeah, they, they do use other creatures quite a bit. Like the very first appearance of the drow um, was in a series of adventures called Against the Giants, where it was several modules and the players had to figure out why these different giants were working together. Usually they're solitary creatures, but they were working together to overthrow a, uh, a kingdom. And the players discover about halfway through the modules that the drow are behind it. They are brokering deals between giants to um, further their own ends on the surface. And the fiend folio, which is where the drow appear in second edition, um, mentions that a big part of their lives are negotiating. They're like from the, the lower levels of a dungeon and you'll find them negotiating with creatures on the upper levels to bring stuff down into their level. So in earlier editions, like the ecology of a given dungeon was like more of a focus. So you had like um, a whole kind of ecosystem that you could discover and exploit within a dungeon. And like, that was the story basically like the, the great big grand stories that we have now, like castle Ravenloft and all that stuff are um, weren't really developed yet. So these kinds of more granular stories were, were more important. So we, the drow were developed as these like under bosses, these Machiavellian like mob Lords, basically. Um, and just as much as they exploit each other's houses, they exploit um, the creatures above them. And also they talked about uh, another thing they have is fire resistant cloaks was an element that I don't think has ever been like brought forward. They also had uh, not only did they have their own language, they had a subterranean trade language, which I think now is called Undercommon. And I think you can pick it from the player's handbook. It's not like a terribly special thing. Yeah, I think you can. But they also do have uh, a complex sign language, which lets them speak in total darkness. And you don't have really have a chance of learning it because it's a highly guarded secret. They also carry uh, their own... They basically carry their entire life savings in a bag around their neck, <laughs> which makes them highly desirable targets um, to necessity to like trade off the danger of fighting them. Um, right. That could be, yeah. uh, that's that, that, that could be like a really cool thief, like a, like a surface dweller thief is like, you know what? I've, I, I, I got to go for the big targets. I'm going to go rob drow in the underdark. That's where the, that's where the real money is. Exactly. Yeah. It's a, yeah. it's, it's taunting. It's a gratuitous display of wealth. Which I feel like with all the spider themed everything like that would like, uh, I, I don't know. My first thought is like, that's a, that's a trap. That's yeah. <laughs> just carrying your wallet around your big giant, yeah. like, uh, you know, George Costanza wallet right in front of, <laughs> in full view of everybody. And what am I going to do with all this money? And everything is themed on uh, like uh, ambush entrapment predators. <laughs> like yeah. Everything in your society is, is spider themed. <laughs> yeah. Like a drow, maybe drow just have like a treasure shaped growth growing out of their chest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I think like anyone who's played D&D for any amount of time probably has had a game where one or more people wanted to be a drow before this was an official option. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I'm not, I'm trying to think about why that was like, they goths. just, yeah, goths in a word, goths. If drow came out, uh, like when at the same time, eighties, early nineties, we had like Neil Gaiman, Sandman, um, Sephiroth comes to mind from yeah. Final Fantasy seven. That was a big deal. Yeah. And I'm just like just the whole uh, like trope of like the dark edgy antihero uh, doing my own thing kind of you know yeah antiheroes yeah. have been have been popular for like fifty years longer maybe yeah um they they're like the most beautiful 
uh, anti-heroes out there. They're like refined. Um, I think they're like the they're like the the sexiest monster in the book. You know, they're like <laughs> everything else is either like outright monstrous, alien. They're like it's fire itself, or it's like these are the first ones that like look good <laughs> as part of their like their very nature also vampire the masquerade yeah, was yeah. becoming way popular and this was like a close uh aesthetically anyways close yeah you really get you get you get a lot with dark elves because you get like your cool like goth edginess and you also get your uh like magically um uh almost mary sewishly better at like whatever is relevant at the time Elf-ness, totally like Driz no? Drizdo I can't remember if it's Do Durden or Doro Doro Erden it's like I I I read it in my head whenever I see it is Drizit Do Erden which yeah. sounds like a name to me but I don't know if that's what it is he is an ultimate Mary Sue character mm-hmm. from I think Ed Greenwood's games and he's got like he's just like a a living airbrushed van He's yeah. got like a magical panther friend. He's got two scimitars. He's like a he, he comes from an evil race, but he's redeeming himself as an individual. Uh, it's a little goofy, but yeah. this the whole the whole thing is so that's okay. It, he reminds me of, and I mean this in an endearing way, but it, like of the out of the kinds of characters that like me and my friends would come up with as small children playing like pseudo D, where really we're just describing characters and events to each other but with no limiting structures at all and so he's like yeah and i'm really cool and i've got long white hair and two swords and a best friend who's a panther and everyone likes me even though all the other people that are like me are evil but not me i'm super good and i've saved the world five times and i fought a hundred orcs one time in one you know and that kind of that seems like yeah, it's whole <laughs> and who can blame yeah that attitude <laughs> You know, um, but we're uh, 30 plus year old men and we have to put those notions aside and, yeah. and figure out how drow fit now. And uh, <laughs> um, looking back to elves in folklore and myth, um, I've probably talked about this on and off throughout different entries, but um, elves are one of those words that can also be mixed with the other words for little spirits of the forest. Mm-hmm. Um, elves are typically the ones described as abducting people. You can get into um, like changelings who are like the exchanged child of an elf who gives you one of their kids in, in return for stealing one of yours, um, which might just be a way of people dealing with leaving uh, burdensome children um, exposed in the wilderness and then just saying that like the elves came and took them and then you get more um, into the things that we were talking about earlier where you have like elves throwing an eternal party and if you eat the food then you're stuck there forever or they just dance and drain your life force just by being there and you can't leave because they are while they're beautiful and opulent and luxurious they like they're not human so they don't have the ebb and flow of life and death that we have where we need sleep and then we're rejuvenated they're just like in this one mode for eternity um the actual word drow is possibly from a dialect of the scots which was an alternate form of trow or troll Uh, The Oxford English Dictionary has no entry for drow, but two of the citations under trow have drow as an alternate form of that word. Um, Trow was used to describe um, a variety of different evil spirits, but the everything about the the drow as presented in D&D was invented by Gary Gygax, except for the basic concept of dark elves. Um, the Dark Elves show up in the Prose Edda, which is a source we talked about before um, as like one of the only real sources of Norse mythology. Um, dark Elves or Black Elves live below the ground and are blacker than pitch. 
Um, some people think there's a difference between black elves and dark elves. It's all very uh, difficult to determine because there's no real, like, uh, there's no catalog. It's just all kind of like mentions here and there among in, the, in that one spot. Uh, Gygax said he was interviewed about Drow a few times because it's possibly one of his most, besides the game itself, it's like the most lasting um, and and powerful idea he had, I think. Um, and it's kind of funny. He was he, he's asked to describe where he came up with it. And he says, Drow are mentioned in Keatley's The Fairy Mythology, as I recall. And as dark elves of evil nature, they served as an ideal basis for the creation of a unique new mythos designed especially for the AD&D game. Um, the word drow, you can't find it in that book. It's not in that book. In another interview later, he said that he took the term from a listing in the Funk and Wagnall's unexpurgated dictionary with no other source at all. I wanted a most unusual race as the main power in the Underdark, so use the reference to Dark Elves from the dictionary to create the drow. There seems to be no book by that title. <laughs> the problem. So he was just kind of like riffing when he was interviewed and like not, he probably got like a lot of other things mixed up and wasn't very uh, keen to be accurate with what he was saying. Um, but there is, there is a Funk and Wagnall standard dictionary of the English language that has drow um, defined as in folklore, one of a race of underground elves represented as skillful workers in metal compare troll or variant of troll trow um, drow. Whenever drow were on the covers of magazines published by um, dragon magazine or um, Paizo publishing, the makers of pathfinder would uh, publish their own thing as well. Um, drow often sold better just having them on the cover <laughs> um, I think there are like two different novel sets featuring drow characters um, io9 named the drow as the eighth most memorable D&D monster there's a lot of uh, they have a lot of lasting power the but the dark elves themselves in mythology um, they might be just another word for the dwarves who were the mm. masters of, of like crafting because yeah. they have the same, they're both mentioned in the Edas, but they both overlap like what they're doing and what they're about. So they might just be called two different things because they're called the Zveltafar. And I think Zvart is black or dark. And then the Elfar is elf. Um, they have like a place called Zveltafarheim, Hymir which is the world of the black elves, but in it dwarves are crafting things. They craft um, like armor for Kings. They also crafted the, uh, the fetter that binds the, the wolf Fenrir. So they exist in that like mythological place that Tolkien um, like picked up on and ran with. But as far as like, there's, there's even like a sort of elf heaven where the dark elves live underground and craft, but it's not so much like an evil race versus a good race. It's kind of like they're just um, opposing sides of the same kind of spiritual coin. Right. Yeah. Neither good or evil, but they're just kind of dwelling in different places. And it's even possible that the influence of Christianity um, had a hand in delineating the light elves from the dark elves. And that our idea of like the dark elves being evil and the light elves being good is because of the good and evil duality in Christianity yeah. when it, when it mm -hmm. came in touch Norse mythology. There's too much nuance here. Everything's binary. It's yeah. good or bad. Um, yeah. I think I, I touched on a lot of the other examples of, of dark elves in, in media. Um, in the gaming, there is the dark Eldar who are like way more, debaucherous examples of of this almost exact same kind of deal yeah yeah i think they're fantastic villains in like a because that's from uh warhammer 40k and which is a setting where every faction is bad like every faction is bad even the kind of good ones they're still pretty bad you know and the the dark eldar um who uh they, they they're calling them drukari now 
they renamed stuff because Eldar is, I believe, uh, from Tolkien, the Elvish word for elf. And uh, Games Workshop uh, wanted to uh, have more of a leg to stand on when they were suing other people for stealing yeah. their stuff. So they just renamed a bunch of stuff. So they're called Drakari now. Um, but they are uh, uh, great evil villains because they're... Um, their whole deal is so the elder are space elves. It's just it's just fantasy elves basically, but blown up to the scale of an entire galaxy. And they ruled the galaxy for the Eldar did like the space elves. They ruled the galaxy for like hundreds of thousands of years and had a post scarcity utopia and used all of that freedom and power for entertainment. But they just it got more and more intense as millennia wore on, and they got to the point where they're just basically having like most of their free time was like designer drug fueled like gladiatorial murder orgies that was their main societal activity and in this setting there's the chaos gods which anyone who feels strong emotions channels that emotion into a deity that personifies it in the warp it's it's, it's a whole thing but the uh the Dar- the eldar like partied so hard and so debaucherously for so long that they created a like god of uh malicious pleasure seeking who, when they exploded into the reality, tore a hole in reality like light years across and almost every sentient creature, like immediately their head exploded. And some of the Eldar knew this was going to happen and left in giant world ships and were like, we don't, we want nothing to do with this. Most of them died, except the Dukari were hanging out basically space underground in this thing called the Webway because you can't have underground caves in a whole galaxy. So it's another dimension you can travel through. They were in their city in the webway. And so when Slanesh, the god of debauchery and stuff, was born, they weren't affected. And But since Slanesh was born, basically all of their souls get devoured by Slanesh, so they're tortured forever whenever they die. So the good other Eldar just trap their souls in stones and, and try, to, try to just not get their souls eaten. But their Drukhari, the dark Eldar, they figured out a way of keeping Slanesh from eating their souls by extending their life by if they torture people they can steal their life energy and are like energy vampires and so they double down on everything they did to create Slanesh in order to keep Slanesh from getting their souls <laughs> so they're, they're doomed in the end either way but they're just like kicking the can down the line and doubling down and just making it worse and worse and worse and going on farther and farther but like when they attack they're not trying to go for like a strategic victory they don't need anything they've already all got all the post-scarcity super technology right they're attacking because they need to cause as much misery as possible and they're having an amazing (laughs) time doing it and that's all they want their weapons don't kill you they just put you in debilitating amounts of pain so they can take you back and use their weird like uh super biological technology to turn you into sentient furniture and like stuff like that or like put you into gladiatory things or just do they're they're like super like wild like S and M villains? They're all all their armor is covered in spikes. Yeah, they're like, like Mad they're Max. Just... Uh, yeah, two. yeah. It's um, it's 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 wild. They're great villains. They're terrible. They're, they're yeah, uh, yeah. They like they're they swing that way. They they kind of get rid of all the refinements and the like society of it and just go for the the super chaotic debauchery, yeah. which I like. I think the um. When I think of like what's what would be a drow aesthetic today, it may, I think of like certain uh, K-pop groups. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't name any in particular, but I can just think of them like e girls and e boys. Um, I think K-pop would be a good place to look for your aesthetics. Just like really sad, but like totally beautiful and like well lit, yeah. uh, charismatic, and then like normal human beings swooning and dying for them. Mm-hmm. but they also live in a completely rigid uh like pop culture machine that like makes them live in like a house together and <laughs> controls all of their every aspect of their lives so oh, maybe yeah. they're truly sad even though their sadness is just like yeah part of their look um i think why don't we do you have anything emily do we have a tolkien corner what do you mean, do I have anything? yeah come on over <laughs> there was a rhetorical question <laughs> it sounds like you want to wrap up no no i want to know everything about the so this is something i didn't know that there was like i know this you know this might surprise you there are elves in tolkien and i think uh i knew that you know that 
but I didn't realize that there are not drow specifically, but there's like a precursor to to them. There's specifically one elf that I think um, Wizards of the Coast or is it Wizards of the Coast that made drow? It was Gygax. It was Gygax. I know. I know he had to have been a Tolkien fan because there's so many direct lines, like from the smallest, minute little details um, that end up being major, like everything that I went. I wrote to you about dragons and um, the whole, the whole structure of the bard class is, but um, so I wanted to start by saying that like the Lord of the Rings is, is a book that was written by hobbits about what happened during the war of the ring. It's not like, it's not an omnipotent narrator. So like the elves come across as like very angelic and just totally good in like inscrutable but benevolent um but in the silmarillion which is a text that is translated from the elvish by bilbo but in a much more sort of like like he was bilbo was more of a historian and less of a less of a adventure novelist (laughs) yeah so um the silmarillion is a text written by elves about their own history and in the silmarillion especially in the first age the 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 major actors in history are are morally gray and some of them are quite evil um if elves can be evil um so what you were saying earlier about like the drow being um I guess put into the underdark because they lost a war or something. Was that what you were saying? Yeah. They were cast out. Yeah. So there's all the different households and bloodlines and kindreds of elves in the Silmarillion have a lot to say about each other. And they all like at one point or another are, are enemies. And there's one elf in particular in the Silmarillion. Um, this is in the chapter called of my Glen, and it's right in the Silmarillion. I'm not really going to get too far into like any like unfinished tales or notes, but like this is, it's right in the Silmarillion. There's this, uh, there is an elf uh, ale called the dark elf. And he is an elf who lives kind of apart from society he lives in a house all by himself in the darkest part of the forest and he has some servants and they are all silent and he's like very um he's just he's described as silent with like pale skin he never goes into the sun he shuns the sunlight um and he kind of like as the story of his um he's just got one chapter Miglin is his son and the chapter is named after his son his son has kind of like a big part to play later and in the story, but his father, Aeol, is is d- described as a sun shunner, and he can't take sunlight. He lives in a part of the forest that was originally, um, it belonged to one kindred of elves, and then when the Noldor, these high elves, um, sort of came roaring into Middle-earth to start a war with the first Dark Lord, they colonized a lot of um, his kindred's territory, so he hates them. And uh, one of the sort of, I would say, she's, she's kind of a princess. She's like one of the aristocratic noble women of the Noldor. Um, she's, this is Ardthel. Uh, she, she's been living in this secret city with her brother, and he's the king of the secret city, Gondolin. And you can't come or go from the city because he doesn't want anyone to find out where it is. But she... Um, she loves hunting, she loves riding her horse, and she loves exploring. So she leaves and she is going to stay with some other Noldor who live uh, in this sort of like area of Middle Earth. And these are two um, other nobles and they're also pretty evil, but like in a different way. But anyway, she gets lost on the way and Aeol sees her in the forest and Ardhel is this, um, she's described as the white lady of the Noldor. She's pale and dark haired and dresses all in white. And um, he's kind of a sorcerer and he's one of the only elves that's explicitly described as using magic to overcome other people's will. And he kind of traps her in the forest until she's so exhausted that she 
stumbles on his house and begs to be let in. And she never comes out of his house again. That's not never, but she doesn't come out of his house again. It says he takes her to wife. And it says in the next paragraph that she was not wholly unwilling, but they have a pretty rocky marriage. And the fact that he marries her um, without permission or without a dowry or without any of the sort of like um, aristocratic sort of rituals that the Noldor would expect becomes a sticking point between him and the rest of her sort of noble family. And he, uh, Aeol, this guy who marries Arathel is like, he's described as stooped. Like he would normally be as tall as any other elf, but he's stooped and he's kind of um, malformed, not through any sort of like birth defect or illness but because he spends so much time with dwarves underground working in the smithies and he's the most gifted um of all the elves in metal craft except for fianor but fianor was like more of like a, a jewel sort of guy this guy is a metal craft and he invents this special kind of armor i have to like look up the word but it's called galvorn it's black and shining like jet, but it's as strong as mithril and it's extremely lightweight. And so he has this special armor that he wears that only him and his household can wear. And he also forges two um, special talking swords out of a meteorite. But that's like kind of, I don't know if that ties into Drow directly, but the special armor definitely does, right? Yeah. yeah. And, he, and he like, he doesn't live underground but he spends a lot of time underground. He's friends with dwarves, which is always in Tolkien. Elves that are friends with dwarves often get into trouble. Uh, elves that like making armor and weapons and machinery are often just the side of evil or end up getting wrapped up in evil stuff. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else that, Oh, and this part of the part of the forest where Ale lives um, is right on the edge of spider territory. All of Ungoliant's daughters, like, are they've infested this forest, and they end up um, they end up chasing away uh, Arithel's escort, and that's part of the reason that she gets lost in the forest is because of these spiders that just like hang out there, and they're always described as female. And I think Ungoliant, this like original spider goddess from the Silmarillion is, is like, it's gotta be tied to Lolth, right? Yeah. Yeah. This is where the, the Gygax quotes about him, like misremembering where he invented Drow is like, he's, he's trying really hard not to mention Tolkien for some reason. Or maybe he does because it's such, it's just one little, it's one little chapter. It's not even like the dark elf, his, his name, he's called the dark elf. And the chapter isn't even named after him because it's his son who's important later. Right. And his son is also like pasty, a pasty goth who's like in love with his cousin and it comes to a bad end. Amazing. But like, <laughs> I, yeah, but like all of the ingredients for drow in like bits and places are all, they're all there. They're all there. You know? Yeah. It's all there. And he's, I think I was trying to look it up and, um, that's the first instance of like in modern fantasy of the words dark elf being mm-hmm. like used as mm-hmm. a phrase because there are elves like you were talking about like there are Norse elves, dark elves live underground and light elves live in the forest. Mm-hmm. Um, and Tolkien plays with that a little bit like two of the three major elf kingdoms in the first age are in caves and, and you don't normally think of elves in caves, but that's, that's where Thranduil lives. That's where Legolas, he's from the woodland realm. And that's a, that's a cave complex as well. Um, Ale lives in a forest, but he spends a lot of time with the dwarves. And I think also his like special armor is like, it's it's really telling to me that this must have been where. Yeah, even the idea of an elf hanging out with dwarves was like in the Edda. It's like they live in the same place in the Sveltafar, uh, Sveltafar Hymir. Mm-hmm. So Tolkien, Tolkien's the source. Yeah, <laughs> pretty sure. I, I think, I think so. So like, I mean, there's lots of evil elves, like I was saying, like there, especially three of th- like Fionor is not a good person and three of his sons, all three of the sons, he has seven sons and three of them start with the word, with the letter C, Curafin, Caligorm and Caranthir. And they're like 
also obsessed with jewels and metalworking and um, technology, and they're like extremely cruel and hot tempered. And right. but they're they're more like the Eldar that you guys were talking about. They're right. So this the myth presented in in D anD D that they kind of just gloss over the details. Could you could ter- interpret it as just like this one house got up to no good with their crafting and their malevolent malevolent evil magic, and then the other elf houses like cast them out. Are drow um, uh, telepathic? Do they have like mind powers? No, I don't think so. The priestesses might have something, but... Because that's something that um, Ail's son, Maeglin, he has like, he can read unguarded minds and he's one of the only elves that's like sort of... He's the only yeah. elf that's explicitly described as being able to do that. Like they can all kind of pick up on emotions from yeah. each other, but he can, he, it's very taboo to break into people's minds, but he can like sneak in. That's cool. But I don't know. Well, that's, yeah. That's one of the, one of the things that, yeah. Drow in fifth edition, especially because they have to be a playable race. They don't have a lot of stuff like that. Cause that would be too powerful. Yeah. But I wonder if maybe the matriarchal society, like that could just be like the, the game makers make being actually creative and, and coming up with something cool on their own. Same thing with like the, the dark skin and the white hair. Like mm-hmm. it's a cool aesthetic for sure. But the spider stuff and the fact that spiders are always feminine in Tolkien and mm-hmm. come from this master spider goddess is like, I think, I think those things are related. I think I think you're right. Anyway, that's all yeah. I have to say. About yeah. That. yeah, that's cool. Um, I, I, I want to mention that I really like uh, hearing that like the Silmarillion is like a history of their own mythology and history, like written by elves about themselves. And that's what the book is, because I didn't know that explicitly about it. Exactly. The way I first read it is I went to the library at Trenton University and found their copy of the Silmarillion and pretended I was reading a book of history in Middle Earth, like I was in character yeah. reading this book. And that seemed like, to me, definitely the best way to enjoy that book is to like, <laughs> is to get in character and like have it be like kind of like a role play thing, but like just yeah. reading a book by yourself. And I've told people about that and people have looked at me like I'm insane. I think that's which, adorable. Yeah. and But like, that's, I feel like now I know that's what that book is for. I did it right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally did. Yeah. Who's laughing now? Yeah, like, they spend they spend like a month in Rivendell between when they get there and when they are like two months in Rivendell between when uh, the hobbits in the Lord of the Rings get there and when they finally leave on the ring quest. Mm-hmm. And it's mostly like reading. Yeah. And, and all of the stories in the Silmarillion are uh, put together from various pieces of lore. And Bilbo spent a lot of his time doing that. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think you're you're totally you're totally right but if you want to look at it sort of like um it's sort of like the bible and the bible is like very complementary to the hebrews right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but like if you read a text from one of the other peoples living in the middle east written about the same events it would probably sound very different and there's a lot more gray area in Tolkien than people realize, but I think that's because frame narratives are such a postmodern sort of con- or like I don't know if they're postmodern or modernist, but it's it's not it's not what you expect from a from a, a story that seems so mythical and like so like fairy tale esque that like actually these are supposed to be texts that are made by people who may not be rel- reliable narrators. Yeah, that never occurred to me until you told me that. Um, okay, I guess that's all I have to say. That's, that's, <laughs> thank you for Tolkien Corner. That's thank great. Thank you. It's been Tolkien yeah. Corner. Yeah, um, I think that's all the corners. I think we've filled all the corners on that one. I don't know um, what else there is. This is yeah, it. We got, we got uh, Real Mythology, Forgotten Realms, Tolkien, and uh, Games Workshop. Those are the four corners. Yeah, the four corners of the universe. I yeah. think we covered it um that's it that's great next week next week whatever uh whenever we come out with this will be empyrean we're continuing yeah. into these finally and we're going to get into the uh uh the child like wrestling angels 
(laughs) (laughs) So look forward to that. Um, And in the meantime, uh, monsters to you. Goodbye, Wes. Goodbye, Chris. Thank you.